And welcome to our new series of Beckett Talks, Research and Enterprise. In this series, we're bringing together colleagues from across our university to explore the theme of equality, diversity and inclusion within a wide variety of research and enterprise projects. From sports to clinical sciences, events and cultural studies. Our Research and Enterprise series has been created as part of our annual Staff Research and Enterprise Conference, where our academics discuss equality, diversity and inclusion in their ongoing research projects. You can join the discussions on Twitter, discussing the topics raised throughout the conference using hashtag BeckettREC21. Hello everyone and welcome to this podcast around the term of bodies in formation. Today we are joined by a number of academics from the School of Cultural Studies and Humanities here at Leeds Beckett University. But first, let's join Professor Ruth Robbins, Professor of English Literature at the school. Ruth, tell me a bit about bodies in formation and what it means to you. The bodies we encounter in our school, in our world, in our lives, of course come in lots of different types with lots of different experiences. They are black and white and brown bodies. They are gendered or ungendered bodies. They are sexed bodies, they are classed bodies, and they are abled and disabled bodies. They all inhabit intersections and they inhabit them in different ways. They bring different bodily experiences into our space, the university, and out there. And my interest is in the processes of affect that are produced by reading. Emotion that becomes a bodily experience when we read something that makes us laugh or cry or flinch. How does my discipline account for or actually fail to account for those experiences? Thank you, Professor Ruth Robbins. Now, you're going to read out an extract from a memoir. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? In Gratitude is a memoir by the novelist Jenny Diskey. Two words, but I think the pun is meant. The memoir is about two intertwined stories. The first is the story of Jenny Diskey's troubled, abused childhood, as the child of wholly inadequate parents, a life from which she is rescued, if that's the right word, by the novelist Doris Lessing in the early 1960s. Um, It might not have been entirely a rescue. The second story is her confrontation with her own mortality. This is a cancer memoir. She is diagnosed in her late 60s with two untreatable, incurable lung conditions. Her body lets her down. The narrative takes us as near as possible to the point of her death, though not, of course, beyond it. Questions that animate this experiment include, what are we doing in our classrooms when we ask students to confront narratives of trauma and distress? And what are we doing in our classrooms if we don't ask students to confront those narratives? What are we doing in our classrooms? Thank you, Professor Ruth Robbins. That was really interesting and I look forward to hearing you reading this memoir out. Extract one, a journey. 
What I really want to write about is a short walk I regularly made from a bus stop in Shoot Up Hill in Brent, across the road and along a street called Kinkring's Cross Road, to a house, the top flat of which Doris had bought when the Charrington Street house was compulsorily purchased by the local council after the flat she had moved to in Maida Vale turned out not to be to her liking. According to Google Maps, it's about a three minute walk, which surprises me. I thought it was longer. I don't remember what date she moved there. But during that time, I was running a free school for intractably difficult children, studying at a teacher training college and then working full time as a teacher in Hackney. I lived in a small flat of my own in Camden under some joint ownership arrangement, which is now nothing more than an infuriating dream scheme for young people trying to find somewhere cheap of their own in which to live. My three minute walk happened over several years that took up most of the 1970s. I often made the trip at the end of the school day in Haggerston or from my flat in Agar Grove to see Doris, usually weekly, invited for tea or supper or for lunch at weekends. Whichever place I started from, it seems that a bus I always used buses rather than the tube if I could. The bus took roughly the same time, between 39 and 47 minutes with a clear road. Even in the mid-1970s, a clear road was hard to find on Shoot Up Hill, which ran the full length from Kilburn to Cricklewood and upwards to northern places I still haven't heard of, changing its name as it went along perhaps just to keep bus passengers on their toes, in the hope that it might eventually transform into something along the lines of a garden paradise for those who stayed the course. It's really the Edgware Road, and the nearest thing to magic is the Three Wishes pub some way after Bronsbury, where I got off. A few yards from the bus stop, there was a zebra crossing, maybe 20 or 30 steps. At each footfall, the anger increased. Instead of swelling, it recoiled, contracted, showing its, steely, showing its steely strength like a hooded cobra, coiled around itself while arching its head, pulling it back, sucking in all the energy it needed to make a lightning fast strike. Rage. A rage that stank like garbage in a wheelie bin on a sweltering summer day. But it started slowly, like the serpent in the garden, condemned to move on its belly, to have its head crushed by the human and to strike the human's heel. By the time I was at the crossing, it had curled itself into the tightest of springs. As a rule, it lived nice and quiet down in the viscera, somewhere dark red and moist that thanklessly produces or regulates some hormone or other to keep her body going in a nice homeostatic fashion. The heart beating like the grandfather clock in the kitchen, all the blood and guts, humble organs keeping time, controlled and controlling 
this three minute walk, probably a bit longer because I'm a slow walker and I would deliberately constrain my steps in the hope of getting the spring thing back under my control. That walk, like any repeated event during which one's mental pathways are etched into the body by the brain, was always the same. I don't know when I first noticed it as a pairing of body and mind. The moment when you say to yourself, this always happens here. I always have this feeling at this point. It begins here and grows as I walk towards Doris's flat, walk to the door, another door, one side and the other, but with an opening device that lets you in if the inhabitant of the flat wants to see you. Another door, me on the outside, Doris inside. I knock, though she knows I'm there, because she buzzed me in. Doris getting up, probably interrupting a sleeping cat on her lap. And the reader, seeing both sides of the transparent door, two people each hesitating and taking a deep breath, who really don't want to see each other, but were designated by some higher force to stay in contact, to be a family. Doris's obligation, one of her tribe. The Cancer Journey. I have non-small cell lung adenocarcinoma. I'm mystified by the term, by the negative term for its opposite, non-small. A robust sort of cancer then. Why not large or quite big? It reminds me of Poe writing in The Pit and the Pendulum that his protagonist unclosed my eyes, was opened on the very tip of Poe's tongue, but he couldn't quite make the reach. I sense a pantomime audience howling, opened? For God's sake, Ed, opened? Or did Poe choose this particular usage to unsettle the reader by throwing a net of the uncanny over the horrible moment of vision. But that can't be the reason for the medical term non-small. Is it simply large-celled, but courtesy or custom or delicacy requires the euphemism? What need? Undead has quite another meaning. Where does this linguistic blur hole get us? Non-alive, non-pretty, non-excellent. And up pops non-existent, just when I don't need it. Hey, nonny, no. In my third novel, Like Mother, there was a character called Noni for short, a baby girl born without a brain, although the narrator of the book. Non-existent. Nonny. No. One of the things I was very clear about immediately after my diagnosis as a canceree was not wanting to be dropped into the victim arena. Not, worst of all, that awful designation which chases us, whatever we are doing or misdoing, being on a journey. When I began this memoir, I anticipated with dread and hoped to bypass the crushing moment when I would first be described as being on a journey. Might have been King Canute for all the good that did. 
Quite a few people ignored me, as is their right, and jumped in anyway, launching my boat, giving me a pat on the back to get me going, firing the starter gun, swimming alongside me for a while, hoping I would stay the course, wishing me strength for the road I travelled, all of them knowing but not actually saying that journeys do end, that's the point of them, and we all knew where this journey ended. Right at the start, I was in a funk about the avalanche of cliches that hung over my head in a bucket that we would all, me included, tip up to cover me as if with pig's blood at my first and last prom. How do you do? The name's Canute, Carrie Canute. Cliches exist because they once worked brilliantly. They helped to universalise the intractably private, to keep a distance between what people wanted to say and couldn't. They must have been alive then. Now they are either deadening or the party favours to be played with. For some writers, they are a springboard, perfectly placed to be rejuvenated, to renew or cut through their general use as thought concealers. If people reach so readily for a cliché, it's because there's something they can't say or even think. When Beckett or Nabokov twists a commonplace to an oh-so-considered sentence, it too does the work of the uncanny, the too well-known as unknown. I fucking love clichés. Thank you very much for that reading, Ruth. It was very powerful. Whether it's media, history, English literature or creative writing, studying at the School of Cultural Studies and Humanities at Leeds Beckett University challenges its students to think critically and creatively about the world around us. Located in a historic city thriving with graduate employment opportunities, the School of Cultural Studies and Humanities is a community of widely published and prize-winning historians and literary critics, media scholars and professionals, novelists and poets. So, if any of these subjects interest you, whether you're starting out on your educational journey or wishing to progress professionally, go to leedsbeckett.ac.uk forward slash CSH for more information. Now, the memoir that you read out has been turned into a video that viewers can watch. And we're going to have a group discussion about that. But firstly, can you introduce the rest of your academics that have joined us here today? We are four colleagues from the School of Cultural Studies and Humanities, but we each come from a different discipline inside the school. But we're all concerned in various ways with bodies. So who are we? Dr Zoe Chu-Thompson is Senior Lecturer in Media and a media geographer whose work both as teacher and researcher has been concerned with walk and talk methodologies and with the mediated body which moves through space. Senior Lecturer in Media, Dr Melanie Chan, has an interest in what we might call the virtual body, um, with which I think we've all become extremely familiar just recently those disembodied corporeal experiences um, that we have through screens. For Dr Nasser Hussain, Senior Lecturer in Creative Writing, 
writing itself is an embodied experience written on as well as by bodies. He is, amongst other things, a performance poet um, and his bodily encounters with audiences are crucial to his creativity. Now, Ruth, I'm going to hand over to you so you can lead the group discussion around the video about this memoir. So why did we do this? What was it about? I'm going to turn first to my colleague, Mel Chan, to talk a little bit about what she thinks was going on in that video. So this video started off from a discussion with Ruth about bodies and affect and using Janidiski's text, Ingratitude, as a catalyst to provoke discussions about that. So we decided to think about what happens when students come to us, come to the classroom or come into the building and they bring their bodies and their affect, their memories, their feelings into the classroom. We were also thinking about catastrophe and the affect of actually reading a text which is moving and we meant moving in not just physical movement but movement in terms of emotion. What happens when students come through the door, come into the classroom and they encounter moving material? And that was something that uh, myself and my colleague uh, Dr Zoe Two Thompson had encountered on a module called Media past present where again we dealt with quite catastrophic material and this led to thinking about how do we do that in the classroom and beyond the classroom how do we think about taking those things into consideration so I'm now going to hand over to Zoe who's going to tell you a little bit more about what we've been talking about yeah thanks Mel so I think what you've outlined there is the way that when students arrive at university or even into the classroom, they bring with them all of the, their full selves. And that, of course, creates conditions that are unpredictable, that are potentially serendipitous, that are uh, vulnerable in some way and risky. So there's an opportunity there in, in that mix that we were thinking through how to consciously harness and create those kinds of encounters with our students. And one of the ways that uh, I've done that in, in certain teaching episodes has been to think about how the subjective experience of the students can be uh, met in terms of the intellectual journey that they're on at university. So when we're talking about theories, authors, texts and ideas, or the city itself, how can that actually um, produce an encounter between the student's life and the intellectual life that we're trying to instill in them? One of the ways I've done that is to actually take them out of the classroom and into the city. And that then is consciously asking them to confront the way that they themselves meet the ideas from any given module or a series of readings, asking them to be physically present in the space of the city and think through some of the ideas that we're talking about when we're in the classroom. And it creates opportunities for them to 
understand differently those ideas and also understand them in an embodied way outside of the physical space of the university. But that risk, I think, is, is something that we've talked about amongst ourselves in these kinds of encounters. I'm going to hand over to NASA, who is going to tell you a little bit about how that works for him and his teaching. Thanks, Zoe. Um, I do think it's important, maybe perhaps at this point, to think about some of the risks that we're taking, even in this presentation itself. Um, you will have watched a short video, and your reaction to that video is something we cannot predict. Um, much of the teaching that I do, especially in my subject in creative writing, is uh, is unstable. Um, works in works in a field of unstable knowledge. I cannot be more expert in my students' work than they are. Um, so I find myself on a kind of pedagogical tightrope um, quite often. In, in creative writing classrooms because everyone is taking a risk. I'm fond of saying that um, you know every interaction in a creative writing classroom is an exchange of precious things. Um, your writing, your feedback, your ideas um, are, are vulnerable and could fall apart at any given moment if, if everyone's not quite careful with one another. Um, and it's important to, to remember that my students are whole individuals. And I think that's part of the purpose of the presentation, the first half of this presentation today, is to remind ourselves and hopefully you as our audience um, that the intellectual life is coupled with um, a, a physical journey as well. Um, I'm taking a risk in saying that out loud, um, but that was kind of what, what we had hoped, um, one of the major things that we'd hoped for in this presentation. Um, so this is one of those risky moments. Um, I take another risk in my classrooms because the creative writing classroom is not to set it as, as separate from other ones, but it is a place where I've had a chance to reconceive um, what a classroom is and can do. Uh, and one of my one of the most productive versions of that came um, two years ago, I think, um, with one class of students who, um, when we entered the room, um, we just we the, the furniture was was not conducive to uh, to the kind of learning that I had in mind. Um, so rather than me taking it taking it upon myself to move the furniture around the way I thought it should be done. I simply ask the students to rearrange the furniture themselves, and then I stayed out of the process. Um, what ensued was funny um, and disorganized, and everyone started shouting and giving instructions to one another. And some people stood back and were quiet, and other people um, took care of the students who were sitting back and being quiet, tried to bring them into the conversation. And uh, and the result of this chaos, which ensued for a solid twenty minutes, um, was a was a really unorthodox kind of horseshoe. And uh, and what occurred to me in that in that process was that this is that what they were actually learning about wasn't 
each other or group dynamics or anything like that, but they were actually learning about the process of writing itself. They were engaging in the subject, even though they didn't know it. Because when it was all over and the, the, the horseshoe with its odd sort of foot sticking out at the side um, was done, I asked them if this was a finished product. And they said no, but we had to stop or else we weren't going to get anywhere. And, uh, and I, I was able to connect what they were doing with their bodies and with the physical material stuff in the room to the practice of writing. And I said, this is fine. It's a little messed up, but you can revise it. Um, and, and I think at that moment, a really powerful lesson about the subject landed for them. Um, and I'm really proud of that cohort as they've continued through the degree. And, and I can reference that point in their learning and have done so multiple times, and they remember it um, in, a, in, a, in an embodied fashion. Um, and that's kind of, that plays into the big risks. And, and it's, it's a small change, but it has huge effects um, in students' learning. Um, I'm going to leave it right there, and I'll pass the baton back to Ruth, because um, I think we have some final statements. Yeah, I guess we do. So this is an experiment. We don't entirely know what it is that we found out, but we are still in the process of finding out. We came to this from Jenny Diskey's In Gratitude because it's a, a text that produces affect. It is a triggering text. It tells stories that are partly about sexual abuse and, um, and sexual violence. It is also immensely emotional because it is a cancer memoir and at the end of this narrative, this narrator will be dead. What was I doing to students when I made them think about bodies that might not survive, bodies that were so much at risk? What was I doing? Well, what this is really about is the sense that the body and the mind are deeply connected. We need to put aside Cartesian dualism. We need to remember that a body and a mind are the same thing. And part of what we're interested in is that sense that where you put a body, you change where you put a body, you can change the mind that inhabits that body. And that's the value of our subjects and the arts and humanities subjects. That's what really matters about what we do. Thank you so much, Professor Ruth Robbins and the rest of the academics from the School of Cultural Studies and Humanities. That was a really intriguing podcast around bodies in formation. Thank you. The Beckett Talk podcasts are released every Tuesday. So don't forget to check our social media channels on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook to find out more details on our next episode. See you next week.